Hello, everyone. Welcome to All in Politics. I am Baron, and I'm a sophomore at Claremont McKenna College studying economics and data science. I'm Yaqing. I'm a junior majoring in philosophy and public affairs. We are working with the Keck Center for International Studies on the podcast fellowship. In this podcast, we dive into the political and economic impact that the Olympic Games have on their host cities and countries. Today, we are very pleased to speak with Mr. Alan Abrahamson, who is a multi-award winning sports writer, best-selling author, and in-demand television analyst. He launched his own website, Three Wire Sports, in 2010, which is a phenomenal source of information for all things related to the Olympic Games. He serves as a columnist at NBC Olympics and was a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. Finally, he is also a member of the International Olympic Committee's press committee. Tokyo 2020 Games mark his 11th Olympics. We are very lucky to have him today. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Abramson. Thank you for the very nice introduction. I appreciate it, you guys. So hi, Mr. Abrahamson. Uh, as a famous journalist specifying feud of the Olympic Games, I was wondering what got you into the Olympic sport in the first place? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate being called a famous journalist. That's more than I get called in my own house. I was 14 years old in 1972 in the outskirts of Dayton, Ohio, out in the farms with the cows and the corn, moo. I don't know how much you or your listeners know about the 1972 Olympics, but they're very famous in Olympic history. One, Mark Spitz uh, won uh, seven uh, gold medals. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Palestinian terrorists attacked the Olympics and uh, murdered 11 Israelis. <clears throat> I'm Jewish, and um, uh, it was the first time that uh, I ever thought that <clears throat> someone might want to attack me. Uh, and uh, so the whole thing played out live on American television. And the person who was host of ABC at the time, uh, Jim McKay, who later became a friend of mine, was magnificent, absolutely magnificent in the way he handled the whole thing. And I was very, very impressed by the way Mr. McKay did this. So I was like, wow, that's an important uh, thing to be somebody like Mr. McKay. The second thing that happened was that the American man lost in basketball to the Soviets. So in the American Midwest, uh, basketball is a huge thing in the winter. Uh, the Dayton Flyers are a big thing. Uh, and <clears throat> for the American men to lose was almost unthinkable. It's still so unthinkable that the American men to this day have not ever claimed their silver medals. The third thing, uh, if you go to public high school in the United States, particularly in the Midwest, it's often a tradition for the boys to wear their football jerseys if they're on the football team to school on Fridays. So this connotes a certain status. I was a scrawny little Jewish boy in high school. I was never, ever, ever going to be on the football team. Uh, the, the Olympic marathon, the men's marathon is always the last day of the Olympics. And on the, at the 1972 games, Frank Shorter of the United States won the marathon. And this was like a lightning bolt that struck me. I was like, wow, you don't have to play football to have status. So I was like, wow, the Olympics is really a cool deal. I think I want to be part of this. So I decided right then and there that I was either going to win a gold medal that kind of didn't work out, or I was going to be like Mr. McKay, this kind of did. So there we go. 
those are some really compelling reasons to get into the Olympics. And more specifically, I'm curious about what does it mean to be a member of the International Olympic Committee's press committee? So it sounds really sexy and cool, and it's actually quite prosaic. So what it means is that we meet in a windowless room once a year, and we go over statistics and charts. And what we do is we advise the International Olympic Committee about uh, working conditions for the ladies and gentlemen of the press at the Olympic Games. So for instance, <clears throat> sometimes we come up with really interesting ideas. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, the ladies and gentlemen of the press have Wi-Fi on the buses at the games that go between the venues because this was my idea several years ago. Uh, for instance, at the games, do you have Wi-Fi or do you have internet on a cable? Do you, how many, how many TV screens do you need in the main press center? Uh, what sorts of food is there going to be uh, at the main press center? Uh, things like this, they seem to use another big fancy word, quotidian. Uh, but you know, when you're working in a place for 17 days uh, or 21 days, you need to have the transport needs to work, the Wi-Fi needs to work, you need to have enough desks, you need to have stuff that works because otherwise it can get very frustrating very fast. So we try to offer advice to the IOC to make the conditions for people as seamless as possible. And we try to gauge how many people are coming, how many people are not, and what we can do to help people who are not necessarily members of big international agencies. Because let's say you're a reporter from a, a small newspaper or a small outlet of some sort in Asia or Africa? How can we make the games an experience for you? Because it might be the only time in your life you get to go to the games as well. Since we are talking about the IOC, we noticed like recently there are some critics about the IOC for reasons like corruption and the way they treat, like they select host cities. Um, do you think the criticism for the IOC is warranted or is the general public or the media oversimplifying what is going behind the scene? Well, yeah, Chin, I think that's a complicated question. So let me try to break it down for you. I think the IOC is always going to have critics and I think the IOC always deserves critics and I'm one of those critics. Uh, is criticism of the host city selection process fair? So it depends on what selection process you're talking about. The process that delivered us China for instance, for 2022, or the process that delivered us Milano Cortina for 2026, or the process that gave us Paris and Los Angeles for 24 and 28, or the process that gave us Brisbane for 2032. These are all different processes. So uh, the IOC realized after 2015, after uh, Beijing defeated Almaty Kazakhstan by just a handful of votes, that the process, especially for the Winter Games, was broken. There were referendums after referendums, especially in Western Europe, for the, for the uh, Winter Games, in which countries said, no, we don't want the Winter Games. So the only two candidates that were left were Beijing and Almaty. And this was the choice the IOC was left with. It, it has totally switched the process. And instead of, a, instead of having a big, fancy global campaign, it now is involved, it now uses a process in which there's a, a, what it calls a future host commission in which cities that are interested in the games come and say to the IOC, listen, 
we're interested in maybe having the winter games or the summer games as the case may be. And they have a quiet dialogue with the IOC. And then the IOC says, okay, well, let's, let's maybe talk about having a deal. And that's how we got Brisbane for 2032. And that's probably how we will end up with Sapporo, Japan for 2030 and Salt Lake City for 2034, probably. So look, is there corruption in the IOC? I think anybody would be an idiot to say that there's not. But, uh, you know, uh, especially in the bid contests for uh, the selection of Tokyo and the selection of Rio is documented that there was corruption. Uh, that's fully documented. The question is, what is the full extent of that corruption and how to change it? So, uh, and how can the public authorities help bring that corruption to light? As you mentioned, the critics for Tokyo 2020, we also noticed that the Tokyo 2020 games were like before it was hosted, not very supported by the public and media and especially many foreign countries. Like news reports from the US and China were focusing on issues like Tokyo's failure in reducing COVID cases and the drama within the local planning committee. So would you consider those pessimistic prediction for Tokyo 2020 as reasonable? And after the game, would you consider Tokyo as a successful game given its difficult circumstances? So no, I do not consider the criticism reasonable, but the, the criticism before the games is in line with what I call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And this criticism is, is the same, although the variant of it is different every single games. The, the criticism before Tokyo had to do with the uh, largely uh, the pandemic, which is completely understandable. The, the pandemic has literally killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So it's, it's clear that the concern over the pandemic was going to be front and center. That said, the criticism in Japan had to do with a different area of concern, which was the Japanese had not introduced vaccinations quickly enough into their population. And they were wondering why, given that that was the case, some 20 to 50 to 70,000 people from overseas were coming into their country. So the IOC and the local authorities who were in charge of the games were like, we're going to be sealing all these people who are coming in off in a protective bubble. And the messaging around that was not clear enough. As it turned out, the criticism proved unfounded. There were, I think the science has proven that there were no cases of transmission, zero, literally zero cases of transmission uh, from the Olympic uh, scene to, uh, for lack of a better term, outside the Olympic bubble. In my opinion, <coughs> my opinion of the Japanese games uh, are a mixed success. Uh, they're a huge success because they happened. First and foremost, they happened. I think for a world that needed, that wanted some symbols of, of hope, that wanted some semblance of normalcy, that the games happened at all, is testament to the organizational and logistical excellence of the Japanese organizers and a powerful reminder that the Olympic Games are the one thing in the world that can and does bring the world together. The Olympic Games and the Olympic movement are hugely 
hugely imperfect. For 23, 24 years, I have borne witness to their huge imperfections, and those imperfections have given me reasons upon reasons upon reasons to keep writing. However, the five rings are also the most recognizable symbol in the world, and people want to believe in the aspirational ideals of the Olympics. We all need hope and we all need dreams as much as we need air and we need water. And so the, the fact that the games happened is themselves a huge success. Now, to be critical, the games cost at least twice as much as they should have, as much as the Japanese promised. And of course, they were without fans and they were a TV show and a TV show only. Uh, I think history has yet to render a judgment about whether that is sufficient. Yeah, I think the Olympic game is, has always been serving as a um, aspiring symbol for international audience. Like um, the last Tokyo game, it's a symbol to show the world that Japan has developed from a developing country to a developed country. And this Tokyo game definitely showed a world that human can unite together and conquer um, pandemic situation like this. I don't know about conquer, but at least at least show some semblance of normalcy. And the last Japan, the last Tokyo Games were in 1964, and they and they were meant to show the world that Japan had, had recovered from the war. So um, you know the IOC came out this week with its television numbers. So the TV numbers show that 3.05 billion with a B, 3.05 billion people uh, watched some or all of the games. That's three of every eight people on planet Earth. So that's hugely significant. That's just a lot of people. Recently, President Biden and other world leaders have announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing 2022 Winter Games. So we're wondering what your opinions on the politicization of the Olympic Games is. Of the games or of this boycott? Which one, Aaron? The politicization of the games through the boycotts. I have two things to say. Boycotts achieve nothing except hurt athletes if they're athlete boycotts. And I wrote a column this week that said this boycott is D-U-M-B dumb and will achieve absolutely nothing. This boycott will achieve zero. Just like the American uh, showboating stunt in 2014 that sent gay athletes to Sochi that achieved nothing in protest of Russia's so-called anti-gay laws. The, the Olympic Games are an occasion to bring the world together. They are not an occasion for the American government to show vote. It seems time and time again that the only government in the world that seems determined to show vote is the Americans. We are in 1980 uh, and again here. It's unclear why the Americans feel like the Olympic Games need to be an occasion to bring politics into the, uh, into the games. And the rest of the world does not have a very high opinion of us as Americans. And uh, if we were better attuned to the way the rest of the world saw us, we might act with perhaps a little more humility, especially on, these, on the occasion of these multinational events. We would do way, way, way better by engaging rather than trying to uh, assert some sort of unilateral or semi-bilateral uh, moral superiority, which we are ill-equipped to do.
So you were talking about engaging in the Olympic game, and we are also uh, talking about the Beijing 2020 Winter Games. Um, so how likely do you think the Beijing Winter Game will be a successful or like beneficial um, event to the hosting city, given that China has not been traditionally a strong player in winter sports? So would that make them like less uh, engaging in the game in that sense? I think it depends on what metric you're going to use for success. I think the Chinese men's hockey team is going to be terrible. So if if the metric is 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 uh, China likely to be embarrassed when the men's hockey team takes to the ice, the answer is yes. Is that likely to be an embarrassment for Xi Jinping? Yes. If the metric is are 300 million Chinese likely to become interested in winter sports over the next 5, 10, 20 years, then the answer is yes, and that's a huge win. So depends on what metric you're going to use. The, the other answer is <clears throat> when Beijing hosted the Summer Games in 2008, and for those of you who have not seen, uh, and you guys were little kids when this happened, uh, and you probably ought to go watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it already, you know, the opening ceremony started at 8.08 p.m. on exactly August 8th, 2008. And on the infield of the bird's nest were 2008 drums. And my colleague at the time, Brian Williams, who literally just retired from NBC, called the bang of those 2000 drums, 2008 drums, excuse me, the signal of the start of the Asian and probably the Chinese century and maybe the start of the decline of the American century. So when at 2000, in 2008, China was announcing to the world, hey, we have arrived. We are a global power. Now in 2022, China doesn't need to say we've arrived. Everybody knows China has arrived. So China doesn't need that sort of win with these 2022 Winter Games. It, it just needs to have very competent, very thorough, very smooth running Winter Games, which <clears throat> are almost, almost probably a lock to happen. And next year, Xi Jinping holds his, marks his 10th anniversary in power. And, and between the two of those events, uh, China, China will have announced to the world, uh, hey world, we are dead bang serious. I think it would be fair to say that Paris and Los Angeles, the respective hosts of the 2024 games and 2028 games are in a similar stage as Beijing in the sense that they don't have anything more that they have to prove and they don't have to show themselves merging onto the world. And in September of 2016, you were the first person to publicly propose that the IOC award the game simultaneously. So I was wondering what your rationale behind the proposal was. So going back to the IOC bid process, my, my thinking was that the IOC bid uh, contests had played themselves out and that the IOC had, uh, you know, the old saying that uh, uh, two birds in the hand are, are better than whatever, one in the bush or something like that. You had two major cities and the IOC needed to secure both of them at one time. They could not afford to lose both Los Angeles and Paris. And the fact was that if they went to a vote, Los Angeles would lose. A hundred percent Los Angeles would lose. And the IOC could not afford to lose the United States again because Chicago had lost and New York had lost before that, and it could not afford to lose Los Angeles. So it needed to secure an American city. So it needed to figure out a way to get both of these cities 
lined up. So my thinking was it needed to get both of them lined up for two successive games. Well, pretty easy. I thought Los Angeles should go first and Paris next because uh, Paris uh, was not ready. And my feeling is Paris is still not going to be ready even by 2024. But that's, you know, a question for another day. Yeah. So you were mentioning like after the whole city like was decided, they might still not be like ready to host the game. But like the IOC, so like host city uh, before like seven years before the game actually start. So would you think that this selection process of giving a long window of seven years would have any implication to the hosting of the games? Well, in theory, you should be able to get ready for a games in seven years. I mean, in theory, you know, there are lots of challenges in getting Paris ready for the games. They want to build a subway line. That's not going to happen. They've just started construction on the swimming pool. Hopefully that'll be ready. They have a lot of political drama going on there. In Paris, the security issues are, are paramount. Uh, you know, they have a lot of issues going on in Paris, which I hope, seriously, I hope that they overcome because uh, when I was a 24-year-old law student, uh, I had the great opportunity to live in Paris for the summer and I've always loved it. And I hope that the games in Paris are a huge success. So speaking of Paris's difficulties in, or potential difficulties in constructing the stadiums and necessary infrastructure for the Olympic games, there have been people who have proposed that the Olympic games should be hosted in a single city or select few cities that rotate uh, every four years in order to save money and also address the issue that you're mentioning about constructing stadiums and constructing the necessary infrastructure. So what do you think about this proposal? Do you think it's feasible and would you recommend IOC go with this? Yeah, I, I've obviously read these proposals too. And uh, this proposal is not feasible and it will never happen. And let me explain to you why. So number one, uh, the IOC believes in the concept of uh, extending its so-called values around the world. And if you rotate them only among certain cities, then you're only going back to the same places over and over and over again. So that doesn't suit the IOC mission. That's the first problem. The second problem has to do with, I mean, for instance, the IOC has never been to Africa. Sometime here in the next 20 years, the IOC is going to go to Africa. It's just a question of when. So if, if you say the IOC should go back to, I don't know, Los Angeles every 20 years, what then do you say to people in Nairobi or Cape Town or um, somewhere in Morocco maybe? Right. What, what do you say to an entire continent? What do you say to people in the Middle East and, uh, and North Africa who uh, that represent that that region represents the fastest one of the fastest growing regions on planet Earth? What do you say to people in India? Uh, you, you know that uh, a nation of one billion plus people that's never hosted the Olympic Games. What do you say to people in Hungary, a top 10 Olympic medal nation that's never hosted the Olympic Games? it's totally unfair to them to say you can never have the Olympic Games. So that's number one. Number two is totally practical and totally logistical. The Olympic Games after 9-11 has become a huge, huge, huge security burden. So to say uh, you, every 20 years, you have to host the Olympic Games is a huge burden on the taxpayers of countries A, B, C, D, and E. 
who would have to host the Olympic Games every, what, 20 years? Uh, I can't imagine anybody signing up for that on a regular basis. In the 21st century, a large number of developing cities and countries have bid to host the Games and have won. And as we previously talked about, the Beijing Games are generally deemed to have been a relative success, whereas other games like the Rio Games 2016 were extremely controversial due to the environmental impact of the Games and the displacements of people and families. So looking into the future, under what conditions do you think Olympic Games can be beneficial for developing countries and including the countries that you've previously mentioned, including India or Hungary, um, what are the conditions necessary for them to successfully host Olympic Games and and under what time frame do you think 10 years, 20 years, even further down the line, they'd be able to host? Further down the line. I, I don't see India hosting the games much before 2036 or 40 at the earliest. They had the Commonwealth Games in 2010, and those were widely, are widely believed to be a logistical and corruption, corruption-filled disaster. Uh, there are now, however, uh, there's an IOC member from India who's the wife uh, and a powerful woman in her own right of India's richest man. Um, it, it would take a huge and full-on commitment from India's public and private sector to make it work. Uh, and probably the full... 11 year time buildup and a great commitment from experts uh, in a, a select number of fields, environmental, construction, legal, uh, administrative, sports and more. It, it would be a huge, huge, huge project. It's gonna happen, the only question is when. Thank you for your answer, it's great insights. And um, to end the podcast, we hope to ask you a slightly more lighthearted question, um, which is your favorite summer or winter Olympic event to watch or uh, to report and why? Oh, I love uh, this question. So I really like watching a lot of different things. If you're asking me what is my favorite thing to have seen ever in the Olympics or what's my favorite event to report on, the, the favorite thing I've ever reported on is David Rudisha's uh, win in the 800 meters at the London 2012 Games. He won in a world record time and everyone in the race either ran a national record or a personal best. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing race. Uh, the second one, another favorite thing I I love uh, to have uh, watched is Jason Lezak's um, amazing um, <clears throat> uh, sprint to save Michael Phelps's uh, eight for eight uh, in the men's four hundred relay in Sydney. I mean in Beijing in two thousand eight. Excuse me. Uh, he swam uh, the last hundred meters in forty six point oh six seconds, which shouldn't happen, but he did it. And uh, it's, you can watch it on YouTube. I watched it probably 200 times and I still get goosebumps every time I, I watch it, even though I know what's going to happen. And I was there live and the, the water cube was like a roar of crazy noise. Um, but I'll tell you, um, like one of my favorite, favorite Olympic memories is in 2004 when uh, Carrie Walsh, who's now Carrie Walsh Jennings, won uh, gold uh, with her partner, Misty May in beach volleyball. 
And uh, afterwards, after the anthem had played, uh, Carrie and Misty went around uh, to the stadium and uh, shook hands uh, with all the ball boys and ball girls and said, thank you. And uh, I said to them, I said, why did you do that? And they said, well, why wouldn't we do that? And I thought that was just one of the great manifestations of the Olympics. Well, those are some really powerful moments. And thank you once again for joining us today, Mr. Abramson. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the great questions.